0: But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Ruby Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at Snapci.com slash This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent. And their VPSs are backed on salt state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 250 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Jessica Kerr. Good morning. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.TV. I can't imagine. 250 episodes. That's awesome. Uh, We have a special guest this week, and that's uh, Gilad Braca. Hi. Do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Sure. I, uh, As they say in Monty Python, uh, when they say that I do shrubberies, I do programming languages. So I've had a fairly long career doing programming languages in industry, which not too many people get to do. We did a a startup that developed uh, one of the first optional type checkers for Smalltalk, but more importantly, it developed a virtual machine that ended up uh, as the hotspot virtual machine in Java. So I landed in Sun, spent almost 10 years there working on the Java language specification, the Java virtual machine specification, and that's probably what I'm best known for. I've done a language of my own that I'm very proud of called Newspeak. And these days I work for Google and I work on uh, Dart, which is a programming language that was developed initially for the web, now somewhat for mobile as well. And it's a general purpose programming language.
0: Yeah, we did an episode on JavaScript Jabber what like 2 or 3 years ago, no longer than that. Anyway, we talked to Casper uh, and Lars.
1: Oh, okay, yeah, sure,
0: yeah. About Dart and uh mm-hmm. it was really really interesting. We also talked to him about V8 since they worked the have worked on both of those projects, but Right. Yeah, really really interesting stuff and uh Dart is definitely an interesting language to, you know, fool around with and get to know a little bit and just figure out how it works and how it does what it does. Yeah, uh, definitely.
2: What's special about Dart?
1: Well, Dart, primarily when it came out, the focus was uh, web programming. Uh, so there's a question, I guess, what's special? How do I a- answer that? There's there's the technical side and there's the sort of pragmatic side. Uh, pragmatically, if you want to, to target to write to the web and you don't find uh, JavaScript a joy to work with, then... Uh, You know, there are lots of people who who transpile, as it were, but uh, the web is not an easy target. The web browser has uh, all kinds of quirks and limitations and history and things that make it difficult, uh, and security concerns, and all kinds of reasons why it isn't the easiest target. And so you need a lot of engineering resources if you're going to get a really high-performance implementation if your language isn't basically a very thin veneer on javascript right so if your semantics are basically javascript semantics that's easy and you tweak the syntax but that buys you very little and so if you want to clean up the semantics and have something that has industrial strength support uh at google we were in a position to do that most people who want to write a language for the web have just slightly less resources than google has That's
2: right. So Dart, it runs natively on Chrome and for other browsers, compiles to JavaScript?
1: Uh, No. Okay. So Dart has a a VM that runs natively and you can run it on a server or just about anywhere. In the browser, it compiles to JavaScript for all browsers.
2: Ah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think there are Dart plugins that you can get for Chrome or something, but
1: so yeah. for development there's there's a thing called uh, Dartium which is uh, basically yeah. based on chromium which uh, lets you run the VM inside of Chrome and that gives you a, a great development cycle hmm. so you can basically inst- write dart code and get it to run instantly in the browser as a web app uh, by by invoking that uh, and that you know cuts back on the time that Otherwise, if you, if you have a sizable project and you're compiling it to JavaScript, every reload cycle, that gets kind of old. We're working to improve that uh, workflow as well, but that's what you were referring to is uh, the Dartium thing.
2: Ah. Uh-huh. What makes Dart interesting technically then?
1: Well, primarily, I guess the most sort of unique aspect, I guess, is the optional types, uh, which a, a bunch of other people have now started to do. And as I said, that goes back for us many years when, when we did this uh, strong talk project in the 90s. But uh, the idea is that you do have a type checker, but it's completely optional. And that means that you don't have to write types if you don't like writing types. If you do write types, you know, if they don't work out, if the type checker complains, it doesn't stop you from running your program. Uh, type errors are not compilation errors. They are warnings of a sort. And so it gives you useful information, sort of like a linter, but if you decide, no, this is too complicated to type, or this doesn't actually, the type checker is complaining, but I know for this particular circumstance it's it's going to work, or at least I want to try it. Or during development, just your workflow, right? You don't have to play games like you do in Java, where, okay, I haven't written this method yet, but I have a a path that I'm not even testing yet that calls it, and i I don't want to be stuck filling out stubs just so the compiler will shut up. Uh, yeah,
2: that's frustrating. Yeah.
1: So the type system is there to be useful to you if you want it, but to be out of the way uh, if you don't. That's probably the most unique. And in a way, you're, you're peop- other people are starting to do that in, in other settings as well, that this idea has kind of gotten some traction.
2: Very much, yeah. There's gradual typing now in closure. We talked about Crystal, which is basically compiled ruby with types the other day
1: okay yes yeah. so there, there were earlier efforts with ruby though i forget exactly uh the history there have been all kinds of things there's typescript facebook is using hack which is basically uh php slightly cleaned up and and with an optional type system so uh this idea is uh, is something that i've been advocating for for 25 years almost now and it's time is fine which is usually the time it takes to get an idea going uh, sadly. So yeah, it's time has come.
2: Right. We've been fighting over dynamic versus static languages for so long mm-hmm. and now we finally have synthesis.
1: Uh, right. So <laughs> so so well there's still plenty of people eager to fight. Uh and <laughs> really, I mean I'm not kidding. I, I see this every day because this is a religious issue. But yes, I, I, I argue that you can sort of to a large extent have your cake and eat it too, depending which one you view as a cake and which one you view as the anti cake, but either way, you can combine these. There are some compromises, but relatively little. You can get a lot of the benefits of types without a lot of the pain by taking variations on this approach. People have, have done slightly different things, but uh, yeah, there's no reason to have this dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy.
0: If there's cake and anti cake, is that like cake or matter and antimatter? If I eat one, then eat the other, it'll annihilate in my stomach and I won't actually uh, gain
1: weight. Well, if you put them together, yes, they do explode, right? That's when you put uh, type fanatics and and dynamic fanatics together, then yes they, they you get this uh, this nuclear fusion and I don't know black holes, all kinds of things can happen. Yeah. Uh, the whole time space continuum is at risk.
0: Oh we we can't do that then. yeah so i'm I'm really curious. the topic that we have down today is programming language evolution and design, and we've mm-hmm. kind of been talking about uh, dynamic and uh, static typing. But I'm really curious, what do you see coming out in languages today that you think is going to get iterated upon with the next batch of languages that come out?
1: Well, I think this optional typing thing is still evolving and people are creating variations Mm -hmm. and we'll see what gets popular. What gets popular may not be what's right, but then uh, that's life. Another area where uh, you know there's a lot of activity on functional and I expect we're going to see more things that are a bit of a departure from the classic academic functional languages. I believe that when functional hits the big time, it will not be the academic languages. A good example of that would be Elm, which is uh, a really cool thing that Evan Chapliki is, is doing. And uh, if you haven't looked at it, that's kind of one of the nicest things that have come out in a, in a long time.
0: Yeah, Elm Agreed. is pretty cool.
2: And it is very pragmatic. It's let's take what we've learned from these more academic functional languages, the MLs, and make something that is beautiful for people to use.
1: Yeah, that's one way of putting it. It basically, uh, it's better designed. Uh, He's a very talented young man, and he has a sense of reality, which was lacking in.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's one way to put it.
0: Yeah. So uh, when you're looking, let's say that you were going to write a language today. I mean, w- what would you be looking at as far as capabilities and uh, language features?
1: Basically, I'm working when, when I do sort of my more researchy side of things, I work with Newspeak. And I'm pretty happy with it. But there's you know, obviously there's a ton of engineering to do. And in terms of language, there's some things I'd experiment, right? I'd like to uh, Newspeak is very easy to turn into a functional language because there's really only, from a language design point, there's only one construct that makes it imperative. But to actually build a working system is a very different matter because all your libraries are going to be different. And that is really the, the challenge, right? That's that's why I don't do it because changing the one construct would be trivial. But actually making this workable then uh, would be rebuilding the platform. So... Uh, Getting something functional, marrying functional and, uh, say, an imperative code by uh, across actor boundaries is how I would tend to do it. So, again, getting actors, really purist Erlang style, maybe actors, or even more purist than that, non-blocking receives and things like that, getting that to be performant uh, when it's on your local machine, for example. There's a bunch of areas like that that, I, that need work.
2: When you say functional here, are you talking about free of side effects?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm not talking about higher order functions, that goes without saying. That's, you know, Smalltalk has had higher higher order functions since, I don't know, at least 1976. I'm, I'm not positive about this even earlier versions, but higher order functions are great. Again, it took a ridiculous amount of time to get this into the mainstream but that pretty much everyone, every new language has these days, but side effect free is, there are advantages to that in in a lot of circumstances, and making that work for real is, uh, you know, Elm is one tack on that, but that's something that I'd uh, like to play with more.
2: You also mentioned functional imperative uh, boundaries at the actor boundary.
1: Right, um. so so actors, you know, you actors can communicate, and some of these actors could be, they could be written in completely different languages as long as they have some sort of, uh, you know, as long as the message protocol is something they they both understand and have a way of of accessing, right? And so uh, a natural way to do that would be to have variants of a language, like in the case of something like Newspeak, you can create very similar feeling languages or or very similar syntactically, and a lot of the culture carries over, and yet One can be functional and one can be imperative. And you can't mix those because the imperative part will, you know, compromise the functional part unless you get into monads and stuff, which I really don't want to. And so, uh, well, actors, actors actually are, of course, a monad. And that's one way to deal with this, uh, letting code combine by just gluing it together with message passing.
2: At this point, when you talk about actors that are in different languages, is that microservices?
1: Oh, I don't want to, I, I don't want to <laughs> get into, into sloganeering at that level, but I think it's just, you know, the internet at some level is, is right, is, is actors, distinct computers uh, on the internet are, are at some level actors, right? That's message passing, right? But if and make it a finer grain. It, you know, the, the question is how small can you make yeah. them, right?
2: Mm-hmm. It's a spectrum. It's, yeah. yeah. It's also, these things are not opposed to each other. Um, The actors, though, you talked about functional actors, but if they're message passing to another process, isn't that itself a side effect?
1: Uh, It's not a side effect on them, right? Any functional program that is going to do anything interesting had better side effect something outside itself, right? Otherwise, we're back to the language is designed for implementing factorial, of which (laughs) uh, we have a number. And so, of course, it's, it's side effecting. You want... You want to see its output. It's side affecting your brain when you do that, when you look at its output. If it doesn't side affect something, it doesn't do, it's not observably inter- doing anything interesting. Uh, so sure it is. And of course, the point is that in a given, uh, say if you do these, if you look at the actors as running in an event loop, when they get a message and they respond during that period, they're not seeing any side effects. So, uh, you know, the code can be reasoned about functionally. The next time you come back to that code when another message comes in, yes, the answers to those messages might be different, but that, that it's isolated.
2: This ties back to Elm because Elm models that event loop with its architecture of receive an action, update your state, that state comes back to you in the next event loop.
1: Right, right. So, so it's doing UI, which, which obviously st- Things are changing out there in the world, but it's, while it's processing it, it's functional. And I know Evan is looking at actors as well. Uh, he's been looking at Erlang quite seriously recently. And so I expect Elm to, to expand beyond UI at some point and do other things. Uh, so definitely, uh, yeah, he might do something interesting. So that's a very interesting space. Of course, people are looking at all kinds of ideas because the overhead of of real isolation, of memory isolation, and so forth, can be crippling for some things. And so, you know, there are all these schemes of using sort of linear logic things so that, you know, it is stateful, but it's handed away so you won't mutate it when you hand it in a message to another actor. There's all kinds of variations for trying to get these things to be more practical and more performant for a wider range of of uses. And so we're probably going to see a lot of activity in this area. Uh, another area that we might talk about, of course, is, is is live programming, which is, you know, I think another idea whose time has finally come. I expect to see a lot of that. That's that may be less about language in itself as about language tooling and and environments and and so forth. But they interact, and they shouldn't be viewed. Uh, they shouldn't always be isolated from one another.
2: Agreed. You said live programming.
1: Right. So so again. Uh, the term live is finally, uh, I w- I'm hoping I don't need to explain this too much, right? This is, this go, uh, Brett Victor did a fantastic job of, of making the world aware of this, right? This is something that in some sense, the small talkers have been yelling from the rooftops for decades and no one paid any attention. And Brett has, has this gift of communication and managed to get people to understand, you know, what this is about. And so, uh, and Elm, for example, is also doing this. And that's where these language design and, and environment may interact because making things functional makes some of these things easier. But generally, we're talking about reducing the feedback loop, right? We're talking about the fact that you, you make a change in your program and you instantly see the, the effect that change has. You do not go through compile, edit, build cycles, et cetera, et cetera.
2: So by live programming, you mean making changes to the program while it's running,
1: Uh, yes, that's one way to put it. The important part is that you make the changes and you see the effects immediately. Right. And uh, so yeah, if it isn't running, it's not too interesting. In in theory, yes, if you can recompile it from scratch, bring it to its previous state instantly, then you don't have, you know, it, 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 but effectively it is while it's
0: running. Yeah. And the idea is, is that you evolve your code as you evolve your thought.
1: Uh, yes, again, it's a uh, one way of capturing. There's, a, there's many ways of stating this, but both of those ways are, are I think, equally valid. As sort of, I guess, uh, from, you know, you guys are, are rooted in Ruby, I suppose, and to the extent that you are, right? Ruby has a lot of dynamics in it. It generally hasn't had an environment. In which to leverage it in the same way as a small talk does, and that gives it both advantages and disadvantages depending on what you're trying to do and what circumstances you're in. But I think we're going to see more of those because the world is starting to wake up
2: to the usefulness of that idea. For our listeners who don't have a background in small talk, could you describe like the small talk environments and how it integrated with the language?
1: Okay, so. Uh The small talk, one of the things that makes it unusual is that it sort of doesn't really make a a very clear distinction between the language and the environment. You can make that distinction, and I think it's valuable to make it, and it may have been a mistake at some level that it wasn't made more clearly. But the traditional small talk approach doesn't really focus on language as much as it does on this notion of, call it a sea of objects. You have this set of objects that are out there, and they interact by invoking methods on one another. The small talkers call that message passing, but it's typically synchronous. And you, you evolve this sea of objects over time to achieve whatever goal you wanted to, your program to do. And yes, there's code. Uh, the code is typically inside methods of classes and so forth, but really they're inseparable. There's this evolving process that can be mutated and changed over time and is constantly mutated, including the code base. So, Changing code involves telling a class to replace a method with another method and things like that. And you, you have this, and this is where, why the small talkers talk of liveness, right? It's, it's this thing is, is, is a growing, changing, evolving, dynamic thing. Uh, so in a sense, it, it's the small talk image, as they call it, is alive. And these concepts are separable, but in the small talk community, they're usually not separated. And what this gives you is an IDE, where you can change your program, you can change the IDE itself from within itself, and customize it, and get instant feedback, and debug things, and and do all these kind of, of things of, you know, on-the-fly debugging, and you can change a class, for example, and add a field to it, and all the instances of the class in your program now have that field, sort of automagically. And you have to work with this to... It's an experience. It's not a piece of text that you look at. It's really a, a thing that you experience and if you play with it enough, it becomes addictive and uh, you you get the small talk disease
0: and then you never <laughs> stop talking about it. Uh, I have a few talk- friends with that. <laughs> yes.
2: Small talk programs do not live in a file, right? No,
1: typically they don't. Uh, again, uh, this, these are all things that I think can be are pragmatic things that that they have pros and cons and could be changed but yes the traditional approach in small talk is again there you have this this live ongoing process you can save the entire process you snapshot it and and you save an image and that's a big binary file on a disk somewhere and you can take it and bring it up and bring your program you know that that image will may have your debugger open with a window in a certain place with a cursor in a certain place in a certain state and you can take that image and open it two years later on a different machine, on a different operating system, typically, and you're exactly where you were. So it it has all these kind of amazing things, but yes, the code doesn't live in a file, partly because they sort of didn't have a notion of source code above the method level, right? So in a traditional small talk, a class is basically built by a series of expressions that reflectively send it requests to add code to it. So you send it a message saying, "Add this method," and you have the string for that method, and you send it another one and so there isn't actually syntax for a class or a- you know a compilation unit of any kind and so there isn't it isn't clear what you'd put in a file uh there are these things called fileouts, which are these imperative records of sort of journals of of what you did, and so that doesn't work well with source control traditionally because they're full of noise like The time you did this, you know, all kinds of metadata that, that makes it very hard to compare and diff and so forth. Now, there are systems that got around this. This does, it doesn't, small talk doesn't have to be this way, but your canonical small talk is that way. And this is some of the things I've, I've worked to change, right? Newspeak is very different in that regard. But, uh, if you asked about traditional small talk, that's kind of the model. And it's interesting and weird and has great strengths and great weaknesses.
2: It's almost like the only way to program is in the REPL and only through monkey patching.
1: <laughs> uh, so that is – there's some validity to that, but I think that's, that's a very unfair – there's so many things wrong with it at the same time. <laughs> that so first of all, right, so REPL – REPL is a notion that represents progress for some languages, like Java. It is a notion so primitive compared to what Smalltalk does, it isn't, a right, Smalltalk has workspaces which are sort of, they're already much more than REPLs, because it's not about, REPLs were invented at circa 1965 or so in BASIC and APL and things like that, and LISP, and you had this terminal, and you'd type a line, and it would answer you, and so forth, and and that's what a REPL does. But once you have, you know, this persistent state, you can open object inspectors and look at them and have multiple views on this stuff and change it and have it update automatically and have a whole bunch of expressions that you pick and choose from and evaluate dynamically and so forth. So it's, it's a lot more than a REPL. The other thing is monkey patching. There is a notion of monkey patching in small talk, but that's, that is actually something different. You are dynamically modifying the code as you edit it, but that's no more monkey patching than editing code in your editor, right? You are destructively taking a copy of the code and, and modifying it. Monkey patching refers to having to do that outside of the definition, right? By going, you know, you have this code that maybe you don't even have access to, and you say, now now slap something into it. You can certainly do that in smalltalk, talk, and they, they sometimes do, but that's that's different because that happens outside the class. I wouldn't say it's monkey patching. It is by reflective change, which is a, a mechanism that can enable monkey patching or not. But that's not really different than editing a file because, you know, if you change something in your image, you can save copies of your image. You can, it has a change log and you can go back and, and, and retrieve your old versions and has actually fairly powerful tools to do that. So the monkey patching, I think, is, is unfair.
2: Okay, thank you. That.
1: That was, um... As I said, you need to experience it. There is, uh, and and because there's such a, it's so different. There's a barrier to entry, which I think is why small talk didn't take over the world as it should have. But if you get past that, if you work with that a while, and you get you 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 kind of get to this aha moment where it clicks for you. After that, yeah, you're infected, and you can't stop talking about it ever.
2: Uh, (laughs) historically small talk used to have the barrier of entry if you had to pay for it right
1: right so so small talkers uh sitting around in a pub with with beer will debate endlessly how come this wonderful thing never really got where it rightfully should and you know you can only speculate but part of that is the early small talk vendors were commercial vendors right they had to make a living and they made some probably fairly bad commercial choices because at that point, they didn't understand the dynamics of open source and and how you actually virally spread software and make it take hold. So yes, they charged for it and they charged for it on a model per developer seat or sometimes worse, sometimes per deployed seat, right? So if you were, say, a Swiss bank, which were some of the few people who had the money to buy this stuff and... Uh, they would tell you, yeah, you're, you're, we're going to put a small talk of uh, this, this system in front of every teller. And you're going to pay us by the, you know, by deployed seat for the tellers. Oh, wow. Right? And back in, you know, late 80s, early 90s, when this said you're going to get a PC with 32 megabytes of memory to make this run well. And that was considered a very high powered, costly machine. And you're going to put one of these for every teller and pay us by the seat. The Swiss banks could do it, but most people wouldn't. The nice thing about that was that you had the development environment deployed everywhere. So if anything ever failed in the field, you could debug it just as if you were, you were building it on, on your desktop as a developer, right? It, it had all the facilities to do that, uh, which is great, but also a double-edged sword because that meant that source code was exposed when people were, were not used to that idea. So there's lots of things, but being different, being different makes you a target. That's, that's a generic start statement about life, sadly. And small talk is so different that it, it certainly uh, didn't fit in, uh, in those days. Though many of the ideas eventually, it's had huge intellectual impact on the field and there's ideas keep coming, including the live programming stuff, which is only coming now. But they were just mainly way ahead of their time.
2: Yeah. Small talk has so many important ideas that, like you said, we're just now getting back to in, Mainstream languages.
1: Yeah, because it takes a generation or so to get to that, because uh, for various reasons, right, people can only absorb so much innovation. Hmm. And programming is a cultural artifact. And so people, that's why people get so religious about it. That's why people get so conservative about it. Uh, you can only teach radically new concepts at a certain stage. After that, developers tend to lock into what they're used to, and, and it's very hard to convince them to do something different.
0: So if somebody were to actually go and design their own language, I'm I'm curious, what considerations do you actually have to make? Oh, boy.
1: Well, it all depends. For starters, today we've gotten to the point where it's it's relatively easy to build a language because there's so much tooling. You you need less expertise than you used to, right? Uh Uh-huh. And it depends what your goals are. I mean, do you expect this to be something real? And in that case, you better understand what the application space that it's well-suited to is. Uh, you need to understand where hardware is and where hardware will be in terms of what's, you know, uh, if you're going to compile it efficiently. If you're not con- too concerned with efficiency, that's that's much less important. One of the things I think that has been historically neglected and people are starting to catch on to and should pay attention is that programming is an experience. Much more than we look at languages as these narrowly defined things. Here's a syntax Uh, if we're, if we're not too shallow, we think about the semantics. Many people don't get past the syntax, but if you do, there's a semantics to it and you, it's a piece of text and it means something and you think you could put it in a file and compile it and whatever. And that is, you know, how it's been since, you know, Fortran in 1955. But in reality, when you choose a language for real as a developer, what you think about the tooling, uh, you think about the libraries you think about the culture and the community and what support is there you think about whether there are vendors supporting it and things like that so there's this whole ecosystem that you have to consider and Smalltalk is an example of somewhere where they didn't make this separation of language and and tooling and it's good to keep the separation aware because you don't want to force people to have your tooling your preferred tooling because people have different choices about tooling on the other hand Thinking about how the ideal path of tooling will work and how that experience will work together. Because you're not just writing text in pencil and paper, right? You're always working with something, even if it's just your most basic text editor. Being aware of that and how these things might interact, what makes things easier to debug or to trace or all kinds of things like that is really important nowadays.
2: Right. We don't program in languages, we program in systems.
1: Right. So it's mm-hmm. it's about DX, program experience, not PL. That's a change that I think uh, certainly the academic community, as usual, has been totally blind to. They'll be the last to know, I'm afraid. To <laughs> And because the computer science has has its roots in mathematics, well, electrical engineering and mathematics, but certainly programming languages, is primarily in mathematics. And The, the outlook is about texts and meanings of, of equations or expressions or, or things like that. And they just ignore, uh, tooling. You know, it's an, it's, it's looked down upon as not publishable, not uh, academically viable, all of which is completely bogus. But, you know, if you, if you, if you're an academic and you spend your time on tooling, you will have a hard life. You might not get tenure because people will not publish your work. Because they'll say, oh, this isn't fundamental or something, right? There, there's a bias there and it's going to change, uh, largely by the example of industry over time because they'll follow rather than lead, I'm afraid, in this area. But you do, if you're, if you're actually interested in making a good language, you have to be aware of that. Look at Swift and the Playground. That's something that has also been influenced by the live programming tradition, right? You have to think of all of these things. You shouldn't be, you should be able to think of the language as a thing that you can isolate and reason about and prove things about if you can and put it in a file so that it will be compatible with a lot of tooling that's standard there. there, The text is the lowest common denominator, but you should also think of, of how that experience will work at a, at a different level.
2: Uh, be able to record it in a text file. Yeah, Smalltalk didn't have that. And Smalltalk was actually going for lock in for like pricing model reasons.
1: But- yeah, I don't know how conscious the lock, uh, they, they got lock in almost immediately, even without trying, right? They didn't have to scheme to do it. Their model was, was inherently that. What, what locked you in was uh, the fact that each vendor had slightly different libraries, more or less by accident, I think. Uh, more than, than the, because the image model, all of them had the image model. And you're no more locked in in that sense than you are with with a language. Once you chose small talk, okay. But the thing is you couldn't easily, it wasn't trivial to take your small talk from one vendor to another mm. because of library differences. Not, uh, some of the libraries were kind of well standardized, but like because it relied so much on reflection, right? Literally the code that created your class when you filed it out was slightly different because the reflective library was slightly different. So it, it caused the basic code to not be immediately portable, uh, and so yes, there was lock-in, but less by. Usually, you know, conspiracy theories uh, never attribute to malice what you can to incompetence. Uh, <laughs> just, it's just an accident that, that they, they weren't scheming. Of course, I'm sure once they had the lock-in and they thought they were making good money off this, which they were for a while, they, you know, they didn't mind it. No vendor minds it if oh we have lock-in. That's too bad. How can you get rid of that? <laughs> That doesn't tend to happen, but I don't think it was that deliberate. It just happened by virtue of of the model.
2: And they didn't yet value portability and uh, standards the way that a lot of people do now when you've got your abstractions of, what's the example, in Java. You don't want to lock in your database, no. So you're going to use an ORM. And then you don't even want to lock in your ORM, so you're going to use the Java standard API version of the Hibernate interface, And even though you never actually change your ORM. And I hope you never change your database because that's incredibly painful. People really like that feeling of uh, retaining choice.
1: Right. They may actually be in a cell, but they like it with big windows that give them the feeling that they can get out. (laughs) <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that, that's true. Now, uh, they, back in those days, I don't think they, they thought about portability in different terms, right? One of the things is that all these small talk systems, not well, not all of them, but some of them were some of most portable software you could write in terms of could you take it to a different operating system or, you know, uh, Park Place ran on almost anything from Sun to PCs to Macs to whatever, and you could take it and it would run bit identical because it was running in this in this image and very much isolated uh there it's a double edged sword all these things have pros and cons and they were very portable but they were not uh portable across small talk vendors they were portable across machines and stuff in in a way that that is still hard to replicate but yeah they definitely uh biggest problem is they were ahead of their time And uh in some ways, in the technical ways, but they didn't see the future in terms of how the culture and business side of things really went. They were thinking in terms of software as something you sell and and so forth.
2: When you say that programming is an experience, I agree with you. I think this is very important and part of the reason is that a program can't be changed until it's alive in a programmer's head. I have to have a model of how the program works, how the pieces fit together, what the purpose of each is in order to change it. Mm-hmm. And that sort of interdependence of the program and the programmer is described by that experience.
1: Sure. And the, the programmer will will actually actuate those changes by some sort of tooling, right? It isn't... It's These are all electrons in some machine. We're not able to manipulate them very directly, right? Uh, it isn't like stone tablets. Uh, and so even that, I'm sure though i haven't personally programmed that way uh though sometimes it feels still that I'm i'm still doing that but the tools right the text editors whatever this is how it feels this is how what the activity really is like it's different from skiing or working in construction there is an experience to it and it really does matter and it, it matters how how frustrating is it to debug something? What do I? What happens when something goes wrong? What kind of error messages do I get? How, how can I see really the state of what went wrong, right? Do I have to simulate it all in my head and try and figure out like, oh, where did I go wrong here? Or can I use the computer, which is actually really good at that, to do that for me? That's why the liveness is so important, because there's no reason we have to, to keep it so much of this in our heads working, right? We have machines for that. And they can do a much better job of it than we can and, and that they usually do and with with commonplace tooling.
2: Right, right. And,
1: and, and the thing is, once you get used to the machine doing it for you, it's really hard to go back to the Stone Age, right? Small talk or small talk-like systems, they give you in certain ways a life of luxury. It's so nice that you can, you know, when something goes wrong, you can always find out, you know, exactly what the state of the objects were and say, oh, this is wrong, and I don't have to restart things to to get back there if I figured out what's wrong, or I have a hunch what's wrong. I can just change it and tweak it and go forward a lot of times, which is something that, again, you have to experience because people tend to not believe that. Uh, but you, you usually can not only make the change, but you can very often keep going, uh, right? Even though, you know, the program was wrong, you can adjust its state now a bit and say, okay, let's assume that this is now consistent, I can keep moving and see what happens. And you get you get so comfortable with that, and it's so much more pleasant. But after that, yeah, you, uh, you ramble on about it like I do.
2: <laughs> do you think that that kind of power, that kind of visibility, maybe lets you write more complex code that's harder for someone else to figure out later? Every
1: improvement in productivity will eventually be canceled out by the fact that people take advantage of it to write more complicated things. And the answer to that is let's shut down all the machines and go back to pencil and paper where things will be a lot simpler. Uh, let's do it. Yeah, right. <laughs> of course it could. Now in practice, small talk code is usually not more common. It's usually a lot simpler because the language itself has, has its own merits, right? The language and the culture and the tooling, they all encourage programs that are actually in a way a lot, a lot easier to read. So for example, small talkers typically write very short methods. Right. It's not I think, you know, an average method is probably four or five lines. And, you know, partly it's because the way the tooling works, uh, because you're you're not using a conventional text editor, partly because the culture is, yes, you're always delegating to something. You're sending mess- what they call messages. Right. You're you're invoking methods and objects are very well encapsulated and you keep top down kind of passing, passing the buck as to who's doing what. And the syntax, it all, it all plays together in a way that encourages that. So I don't think, you know, of course people have written and do write and will write horrible code in whatever language you give them. And, you know, or they may write glorious code that is very hard to read. Uh, look at Haskell. Uh, <laughs> you know, it is very brilliant. People are writing very brilliant things, but, or, or take it further, right? Look at APL, the, the ultimate, the final frontier right you you know the the whole game there was to write the most concise clever brilliant algorithms you could except that god help you if you had to read it later so, so, complexity, so there, yeah go ahead
2: oh uh, so complexity isn't a consequence of the tooling but of the culture
1: no it's a consequence of all those things culture can help by fighting it right or by encouraging it depending on your culture the tooling uh, the better the tooling is, you know, if the tooling is very well designed, it might actually encourage you to, to structure things right and simplify things. But by and large, if you can make, uh, it becomes easy to do something, people will just do more of it until it becomes complicated. That's a sad fact of life, but hopefully in the process, they'll do something more useful, right? That's why we have this, this whole mess of software that everyone complains about. As I said, you know, you can throw it all away. I don't think anyone's about to do that. Uh, even though it is complicated. So surely uh, it doesn't have to be as complicated, it shouldn't be as complicated, but certainly some people will mess it up for sure.
2: That's a very helpful way of looking at it, thanks.
1: And that some people will mess it up? Yeah, it's an optimistic thought, isn't it?
2: <laughs> well, it, actually, you're inspiring me to like use IntelliJ more, because uh, sometimes... Okay. I'm writing Scala mostly, mm-hmm. and IntelliJ is the best tooling that we have for that. But sometimes I'll, like, switch to Vim mm-hmm. just to encourage me to organize my code better because IntelliJ makes it really easy to just throw things everywhere, and I can still find them in the IDE.
1: Mm, I see. Okay, well, sure. So, so yeah, that that's probably an example of that. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, sometimes it's a matter of discipline, right? You have to balance that. And it depends uh, how much you like the tool and and what overall what does it buy you. But yeah, with Scala in particular, you have to be careful with complexity. I think.
2: Yes. Kilad, tell us about NewSpeak. It sounded from something you said earlier that it's a language for building languages.
1: No, it isn't. It's a it's a general purpose language. It's basically. You know, you could think of it as a small talk derivative, but it's enough of a it's a different language in multiple ways. Essentially, I mean, the hubris of this is is not lost on me, but uh, I set out to fix a number of things that I thought were wrong with small talk. And as someone who really loves small talk and the closer you look at the details of how well designed and how well thought out a lot of it was, you know, and how easy it is to screw it up then you realize how how arrogant that sounds to try and improve on that. But I think that after using it for, for many years, I, I could see some of the weaknesses. So, for example, yes, uh, the biggest weakness was that Smalltalk didn't have a strong concept of modularity, partly because it was designed at the dawn of when these things were being actually researched. And so, you know, having a, a, a strong concept of modularity, which fits very naturally with a model, is what we did in Newspeak. So NewSpeak A, it has a syntax for classes for, for like a regular language, which means we can use standard source control. But that syntax includes class declarations that nest, but they don't nest like in Java. I have to emphasize that. It's not the same model. And the top-level classes are are totally modular. There's no global namespace, unlike Smalltalk or unlike most languages you're used to. Basically, that top-level class can only get at anything if it's passed to it uh, as a parameter to its constructor as it were and so it's naturally sandboxed which gives you a very strong notion of modularity a very strong notion of security essentially object capability security falls out of that and basically let us uh, get around small talks, security and modularity problems and also uh we we, we address the issue of, of having source code you know there's, there's a number of other things we wanted to do, which we, we've never gotten around to, but it's real uh, the strongest point, uh, the thing that makes it most unique is modularity. Well, another way of saying that is you could think of, I don't like to say it that way, but it communicates something to people. You could think of it as having dependency injection uh, built into the language.
0: Mm. So are people, are people using this for stuff in production or?
1: So Cadence, where we developed this, still uses it for production, yes. But uh, I don't think anyone else is using it in production, sadly. But, you know, uh, hope springs eternal. <laughs> you know, for a while, Cadence had funding for this. And when the Great Recession came, that funding was lost. And so after that, it's been a labor of love. And as a result, we've done some interesting things, but we don't quite have the bandwidth to keep it at the production quality that we'd like. Uh, so Cadence, you know, uses what they need and things that they don't need we we have a harder time keeping it at, at top quality, but it's out there. It's open source, and you know uh, research is done with it, and hopefully some you know more people will pick it up.
2: If someone wanted to experience the like, the small talk style programming experience with that live coding and immersion, would you recommend uh, that they look at small talk, or could they use Newspeak for that?
1: They could use Newspeak. Newspeak might have a few rougher edges because it is a, a small open source system and there's not a vendor building it, right? So there are, there, are multiple. there's an amazing amount of small talks available for people to choose from, oddly enough. Uh, unlike most languages, maybe that's actually a problem, but uh, usually having multiple sources was considered a good thing. There are like, uh, I don't know, one, two, three, four, there, there's pro- I don't know, there's probably half a dozen options you could uh, choose which small talk to use or you could use Newspeak. And, uh, yeah, the thing is, you, you have to be willing to learn something new, but any of those will work. You know, if, if you want me to name names, I can do that too.
0: Yeah. Why don't you name names and then we'll make sure we get, we'll get stuff in the show notes. Okay. So,
1: uh, small talks. The probably, uh, there's open source versions. There's Squeak. There's Pharo, Pharo, which is a, essentially uh this forked off of squeak and is sort of more production oriented i guess i'd say there is uh dolphin small talk there is you know uh commercial small dog there's visual uh, works and they actually have two products which are descended from two distinct systems that when they merged they they kept both product lines because they had There are lots of customers using that that didn't want to migrate or have tried to migrate to Java and had disasters in the process because they find out it wasn't as easy to do that, to to do what Smalltalk does. So that's about five. There's Newspeak. There's probably others. There are a a couple of efforts to do Smalltalk on the web. Newspeak, to a limited degree, runs on the web as well as in its own environment. But if you want the live experience, you want the the original uh, thing, which... Kind of runs embedded in a variant of Squeak, uh, the the new Speak on Smalltalk. So that's more choices that you have for most language implementations, really. Perhaps that's the problem. I don't know.
2: Everybody's got that small talk bug.
1: <laughs> well, uh, I would like them to have the small talk bug. I think that it's enlightening. They'll learn a lot that they didn't know before.
2: I have one finishing question. Harkening back to your introduction, how are programming languages like shrubberies?
1: how are programming languages like strawberries? Well, they can, Oh, shrubberies. Oh, shrubberies. Oh, shrubberies. Yeah. So, so that's a reference to Monty Python, uh, the Knights who say knee, I think mm-hmm. somewhere there's someone who says I design and build shrubberies. And he's very proud of that. And it's a rather exotic, uh, occupation, which is why Monty Python had a field day <laughs> doing this. But in, in that sense, programming languages are someone who does programming languages in industry full time for design as opposed to you know compiler implementation or or things like that there aren't too many of us that do that there are probably a handful and uh, so yeah it's like that i can always so tell you why they're like strawberries or yeah like,
2: why are they like strawberries
1: uh <laughs> you know they can be sweet they can be sour they can you know they can be spoiled rotten you know they they have uh a great deal of variability in the same way.
2: They have the seeds on the outside.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, if we could pursue this, perhaps we shouldn't pursue it too far.
0: Do you have to put your programming languages in the refrigerator? Some of them should put in the you should
1: put in the freezer. Mm. <laughs> uh, but uh yeah, we we <laughs> I I won't say which necessarily.
0: All righty. Well, let's go ahead and get to some picks. The so the first one I'm going to pick is so last week I was in Amsterdam. And then I was in Saint George, Utah, and in Amsterdam they have these; they're kind of like cookies, except they have, uh, you know, they're stamped like a waffle. They're called stroopwafel, and they were delicious. I brought some home for my family, and it was a lot of fun. So I'm going to pick those. I've also got two book series that I've been reading that just came out with the next books in the series. I'm going to pick those. The first one is the Iron Druid Chronicles. The next book is Staked. Uh, it's kind of just a fun and clever take on it's it's fantasy and the premise is, is that due to people believing in them uh, all of the different belief systems actually exist including the gods and other creatures so you have like the greek mythology and the you know the the main character's a druid um, and he worships the old Celtic gods, they've got the North, Norse gods and you know all of the Jesus, Jesus and Buddha and anyway it's really really fun uh storyline. So I'm going to pick those um just a really lighthearted book series. If you're into fantasy and you're into that kind of stuff it's it's fun. Uh the next book series that I'm going to pick is The Reckoner series by Brandon Sanderson. The book Calamity just came out, which I think is the last book in the series. And anyway, it's really awesome as well, and I'm not really going to explain the premise of that. It's kind of a it's a magical world overlaid with the future of this one. So anyway, it's it's really fun, really great series. Uh, a little bit darker, I guess, than the Iron Druid Chronicles. But anyway, I really enjoy those as well. Uh, one other thing I'm just going to mention about Iron Druid Chronicles is there is a little bit of language. Not so much that it really bothered me, but I know that some people are more sensitive about that than I am, so if that bugs you, then don't read those books. But yeah, so those are my picks. Jessica, do you have some picks for us?
2: Yes, I have two picks. One is a Katrina Owen talk from Bath Ruby last year called "Here Be Dragon, something like that. And she goes through some like rather scary Ruby code, giving you a lot of pointers about, you know, maybe we should work on this coding style here and there. And then she compares writing careful code to participating in Prisoner's Dilemma. It's really interesting talk, and it's 20 minutes, and I'll put the link in the show notes. My other pick is an emoji. So last week in Slack here at Stripe, the party parrot emoticon was added as an emoji again, and the party parrot is like this super flashy, dancey parrot head. And there's at least one person here who gets migraines triggered by the flashing colors. Uh, so I deleted the party parrot emoji again because my little piece of amusement is not worth someone else possibly getting a migraine or a seizure out of it and replaced it with this slow party parrot which is beautiful because now there is a party parrot so people won't go adding the standard party parrot back and also everybody loves the slow party parrot i'm going to put a link to that image in the show notes and remember be kind to the other people on your slack channel and don't do the super flashy complimentary colors stick with the slow party parrot because it's extra awesome. Those are my picks.
0: All right. Gilad, what are your picks?
1: Okay, so I probably completely misunderstood the concept of picks when when you sent me the invite, Uh, but I'll invent one now anyway. So uh, uh, the author Umberto Eco died on Friday, and he wrote a lot of books that I don't know how much they're going to appeal to the podcasters, but again, I encourage them to try something different. Look at, at, uh, some of his titles. Uh, the most famous one is the oldest one is his first novel, The Name of the Rose, which was even made into a movie. Uh, it's kind of, uh, a, a detective story set in the Middle Ages. Uh, the thing about his books, he, he was a professor of semiotics at, uh, the University of Bologna. And so he, uh, immense scholarship, right? There are references to all the most obscure things you ever, you never knew about, uh, and quotes in Latin and whatever. So it isn't easygoing, but it's also, he combines like an interesting story with with a lot of historical and philosophical setting. Uh, then there's a whole bunch of other ones, some of which are better than uh, uh, others or more readable than others. I think uh, if, if, you know, one of the newer ones, you might go with a Prague cemetery, which is relatively easygoing and fun. Or there's Foucault's pendulum, which is great, but it's it's probably a bit of a challenge. So uh, check him out, Umberto Eco, with a U, U, uh, if if you guys don't know of him. And ECO, I think it's anyway. Google will correct your spelling, uh, in any case. So that's a suggestion that uh, since it seems that picks are really not very closely related to computing,
0: that it's a it's a good suggestion.
2: Thank you. Right. Although we often have a lot of very computing related yes. picks.
0: Yeah, I was just well, being lazy yeah. this week because uh, I was traveling and didn't have a chance to really look stuff up.
1: Yeah. Oh, another one would be Stanislav Lem, of course, uh, science fiction, if you're into that. He's, uh, well, he's dead, but he was a Polish writer, wrote many, many science fiction books in very different styles. Some of them are like fairy tales. Some of them are, you know, very dark and serious. And, you know, again, if uh, people are looking to, and he, and he really understood computing, way, way back. There's a lot of of references to to computing in those books.
0: All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thank you again for coming, Gilad. Uh, Thank you for having me. It was fun. If people want to follow you on Twitter or connect with you in some other way, what, what are the best ways to do that?
1: They search on Google and they find my blog and my web page and yeah, there's a Twitter thing and there's even a G plus thing but uh, do I remember the handles? Do I care? Uh, let them search. There are search engines. If
0: All right. Well, we'll go ahead and uh, wrap up the show and we'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the Rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlor.